0: everyone, welcome to another edition of DevOps Unbound. Of course, after our opening kind of credit, I'm always looking to go vroom, vroom. But um, we are are ready to vroom, vroom today. We're ready to speed right into what I think is going to be a great discussion. And it's it's a discussion we could have at any time. But through the lens of DevOps, Agile, Lean, and what goes on in in today's development cycles and world, I think it's even more important. Um, we're going to be discussing today usability and accessibility and how DevOps and, and, similar tech, and similar to our aligned technologies are changing it, influencing it, how it's being done from a professional point of view. Speaking of professional, I'm really happy to introduce you to our panel this week. We have an amazing panel. First of all, actually a man I used to work with probably more years ago than he wants to admit. Uh, Paul Pickney is uh, with us. Paul, welcome to DevOps Down.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Why don't you share a little background with our audience?
1: Uh, I'm a lead designer, uh, user experience designer at a company called Swiss Log Healthcare. Um, I have done uh, user experience since before user experience was even a term. Um, including a lot of accessibility stuff including at dish network I got their dish hopper accessible um, I worked on accessibility for a network security company um, and a few a few other telecoms before that um, and currently trying to get us up to speed at my company now
0: excellent joining Paul and I is is Paula from lunch darkly and, and again Paula I don't want to mangle your last name but it's Goyanes, Is Goyanes, that's right. Goyanes, okay. Introduce yourself to the audience.
2: Hi, I'm Paula Goyanes. I'm a software engineer at LaunchDarkly. Um, I've been working at LaunchDarkly for a couple of years, but even before I was a software engineer, I've been really interested in web accessibility and just like the inclusion of all people uh, in the web. And I've been advocating really hard at LaunchDarkly for accessibility for, for a long time now.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Third member of our panel today is Sean Kelly. Sean, welcome. Thank you for having me. My Um, pleasure.
3: uh, My name is Sean Kelly. I'm the VP of User Experience at Tricentus. I've been there a whole whopping three months. So we're just getting, uh, we're formalizing our accessibility uh, plans for software plans. Um, And before that, I actually started off in aerospace. So doing accessibility and usability for bombers and fighter jets for about five years then transition to healthcare for another, I think, 11 years. So it's really interesting to see how the common themes across different industries actually, um, you know, how they play out in different
0: circumstances. Sure, is. that is interesting. And then um, last but not least is my co-host here on DevOps Unbound. He's the co-founder or the founder and CEO of Accelerated Strategies Group. Uh, he was my co-founder at previous companies, Mitch Ashley. Hey Mitchell, welcome.
4: It's good to be with you. I just want to say, unlike our other panelists, I am not a user experience designer, though I've worked with three fabulous designers and teams starting in the 90s with Josh Stoller and Monica Merricks, and then with Paul Pinkney. So learned a ton from, from folks like Paul and others and our whole panel.
0: I, but you are a user.
4: I'm a user, and I do have an experience.
0: Yes. Okay. There you go. Then that qualifies you for this. Um so guys, first of all, thank you all for joining us, let's let's jump into it. So I, I think, you know, the idea of user accessibility, and I'm, I'm blanking right now on the very first sort of uh, was it 508 what was the, the number for the when we first started saying that websites needed to be accessible for people with limited vision and other sort of uh of handicaps was it wasn't a 508 that's a nonprofit company but,
2: um, go i think what you may be thinking of is section 508 um yes for yeah government websites is, is the thing that says that in the united states websites have to be accessible
0: so that goes back probably 20 years i'm gonna bet or 15 18 years and and i think for many of us that was the the stake in the ground, if you will, for accessibility. But of course, I, I think our our expectations around accessibility and our consumers' expectations around accessibility have, have changed drastically since Section 508, all those years ago. I'm gonna, you guys are experts, so I'm gonna let you, who wants to give us a brief history of accessibility time?
3: I guess I could start off with that. Um, actually, it's interesting the in the military world, um, it actually goes back a little bit further than 20 years ago, starting with military standard 1472, which basically outlined how cockpit design should be, including a little bit of display. So um, more hardware based. And then that led to Section 508 and W3, W3C 3 standards. It's interesting though, I've seen like over the past 20 years as kind of, um, accessibility went from a checklist, right? Like check the boxes, make sure you do that more towards a business imperative. You know, we should do this to be better than the competition. And now it's kind of table stakes. So the users actually kind of expect usability as like a baseline, right? It's not enough just to have it anymore. It's become an expectation across a lot of different industries. So it, it, that's, that's actually really good to hear, right? Because if users expect that, that means we are forced to make our products more accessible. And it's really interesting to see the evolution of that over
0: time. I'll just add a little bit oh go ahead ahead. no no I didn't say please please join in
1: sure I'll I'll just add on to that Um, one of the things I noticed especially when section 508 first came out is it was very technical there were a lot of requirements about how you tag things like tables and and things like that and it was just very very much on the on the develop development side and a lot of those are actually, some of those have actually relaxed a little bit in favor of things to design on the front end more. So it's, it's, it's gone from m- much less on the, on the technical side, even though there are additional technical requirements now. But some of those have actually kind of gone away because they found out they weren't really all that useful and they were really difficult to do uh, in favor of, of, of more on the design side. Um, the other thing is, I don't know if people are aware of CBAA, which is the um, Consumer Video Accessibility Act. And um, they were falling kind of behind the web world. Uh, so things like uh, um, set-top boxes from DISH and, and uh, other, other companies like that, DirecTV, um, they had to kind of get caught up. And it wasn't until about five or six years ago, I think, Um, When we really, all of a sudden out of nowhere, it felt like out of nowhere, we were kind of behind the the eight ball, we had to get all the set top boxes up to date. Um, Because one of the things I I noticed when I first started at Dish is, um, they were relying on these colored buttons on the remote control. Well, three of them are red, yellow, and and, uh, green. Um, So already you're way behind the the eight ball with that all by itself. So we had to redesign our remote control. Then we had to add uh, uh, text to audio or text to speech and audio description and um, even things like Bluetooth audio so people could put in hearing aids and obviously closed captioning and things like that. So uh, just wanted to throw that in as well. Absolutely.
0: Paul, you want to comment?
2: Yeah, I, I wanted to mention, since we're kind of talking about the law, in terms of the law, the other thing in the United States that really upholds web accessibility is the Americans with Disabilities Act. The ADA has been the thing cited in a bunch of these lawsuits, um, and Section 508 was, was amended, uh, I think, in like the late 90s, like 1998, I want to say something like that. Um, but really, we've been leaning a lot on the ADA for since it's like accommodation of public spaces. Um, for like non-government websites for example to to be able to actually file those lawsuits like erudite and philosopher Beyonce was actually sued not too long ago uh for having an inaccessible website so you know really? any, any yeah, anybody is open to it um there you know the Domino's lawsuit was was a big deal uh maybe a year or two ago so yeah um and that's just the united states it, web accessibility i think canada has like very robust laws around web accessibility so it's not just here in the US.
0: What about EU? Is there any specific EU kind of regulations to worry about here?
2: I'm sure there are, although I can't, like, I remember acronyms off, off the top of my head here. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure, listen, if it's in the US and it's in Canada, it's in the EU.
0: Interesting. You
4: know, one so, of the things I was going to jump in with, Alan, is that um, <clears throat> when I was first was experienced this kind of exposed to user experience and accessibility, there's a lot of focus around. Um, Visual uh, impairments, of course, and ways to design applications. But and of course, we have you know hearing and and uh, ability to input and uh, you know, speech to text and text to speech and all of those kinds of things. So it, it's all of those things individually, but it's also collectively because oftentimes you may have someone who has more than one uh, disability. So it's it's a it very it's a challenging field, but it's also I think a very rewarding field. For from the people that I talk with because you are literally helping people, you know, and how they interface with the world, at least through computers, softwares, hardware, et cetera.
3: That actually is a really good story for my healthcare days too. So um, you mentioned multiple disabilities and so forth and designing for that. So I worked on the Kaiser Permanente website. That was my main focus. Um, This is back in like mid to that late to mid 2000s. And uh, we had to design a care facility website for neuropsychiatric patients that were going through rehabilitation and so forth. So we really had to we really had to make it accessible for people that had traumatic brain injuries. And that was probably the hardest design challenge I've ever had to do in my life, right? There's no standard for that. You really have to talk to people that have brain injuries and figure out, okay, how do I take this really dense, complicated medical information and distill it down in a way that's going to make sense for people that don't have, you know, um, Memory that works like most people do, so that was through a lot of user testing, and it was probably one of the most rewarding products I've ever done as well, just because it was so. Um, we kind of brought you know more people to the table of using that product that were previously shut out before, and that's such a rewarding feeling.
0: I'm pretty sure uh, people on the panel also have stories like that too. You know, I, I mean, and that is a great thing. I, I think it also brings up Sean something that we we need to hit on. You know. When I first became aware of Section 508 and designing websites, it was really about visual impairment. Right. You had to assume, you know, if someone had a visual impairment, was that website usable? Even if even if if it was a relatively minor one like color blindness and they couldn't tell red, green or what what have you. Right. When so much so many buttons were red, stop, green, go. and stuff like that, but when we talk about accessibility, we've—I'd we've, like to think—have evolved since twenty twenty-five years ago, and it's more than just visual impairments, right? Sean mentioned cognitive kind of impairments. Paul, I'm—you know—at the at, at dish, I'm sure it was a lot of visual and, and Paula. What what other kind of impairments do we? We try to design around or design for with our accessibility solutions today?
2: Yeah, um, in the W3C website, there's actually a list of all kinds of, of impairments. So there's cognitive, neurological, uh, mobile impairments, um, as well as visual impairments, hearing impairments. But I think something really important to know about accessibility is that it benefits everyone. And it's not just uh, permanent disabilities, um, there are also temporary limitations, like, I've got a baby in one arm, um, so I'm typing with one hand, or the light is really bright coming out through my window, or I am hungover. 2020 has been very hard on all of us. <laughs> um, I'm not hungover right now, though. All of those are, are temporary limitations. Take um, your word
0: for it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and all of those kind of, uh, what benefits those situations, those temporary limitations, are what benefits people with disabilities as well. Um, and I think something really interesting to note is that, yes, like we are uh, building and designing for people with you know neurological impairments, people with visual impairments. But really, I think it's important for the framing to be not I'm designing for this person with a visual impairment. it's I'm designing for this user flow or like this, you know, being able to accomplish this goal regardless of what your disability might be.
0: And I think that's an important piece of it, too. It's not just how do I make this website better for people who have XY kind of impairment. It's about what do we want people to accomplish,
1: right? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll add to that and say, I totally agree. And the other thing is one of the things you find that when you do uh, a lot of these, uh, you design for accessibility, it's good for everybody. It's, it's not just anybody with particular impairments or anything like that. You're bumping up the usability for literally everybody in, in most cases. Um, the other thing I, I, I'd mention, uh, you talked about, you want to talk about other kinds of disabilities. The interesting thing at, at DISH was, for example, designing for blind people. One of the things people didn't realize, blind people watch TV, and they call it watching TV. Right. Um, and so you need to provide those facilities so they, they, can, they can actually interpret what's going on uh, with a show because it's a very social thing they they get with all their their friends including a lot of uh, blind friends and they talk about these things what's going on with this show and and that sort of thing so that's something that um, I'm not sure many people have, have considered
4: Now there's also the universal uh, impairment we all have which is setting the clock on your VCR. I don't think that's been solved yet. <laughs> But
0: you're showing your age. I don't know how many of these people have VCRs anymore.
4: It's a three-letter <laughs> but, acronym. I thought yeah I still use it.
0: Yeah, it's what they used to tape stuff on, but you just setting your clock on any appliance can be a challenge. Hey,
4: you know my, but, my um, cassette deck here. What are you talking?
0: Yeah, <laughs> eight track tapes. But anyway, um but no, I mean, these, these are all really great and valid points in, in, in that we, we need to do that. But you know, th- there's another aspect talking about the user. So for instance, if you use an iPhone and I'm sure it's probably like this on Android too. There's a whole section in the configuration settings on iPhone accessibility where you can have better contrast, change the fonts, make more sound notifications or less. Or what have you, and and I'm going to tell you, you know, true confession time here. I was hesitant to enable some of those applications that would enhance my usability, my user experience. The same way I was hesitant to take the discount at the movie theater, you know, when they said, "Oh, you're qualified for a senior discount," and I wasn't. I said, "Ah, oh, you know," and I said, "I'll take the money, fine. Give me the discount," but. You know, or getting that AARP card on the day of your 50th birthday. So, I, you know, how much does that play into it where some users don't want to take advantage of, of what we're doing around accessibility to make it easier for them? I mean, how do you, do you design that into the equation? Sean? Well, yeah, I think um, it's kind of like what
3: Paula said. It's just if you design it. You just kind of bake it into the design solution, right? So it's not like a separate design solution. Use the use case and just make it accessible for everyone. So, for example, contrast ratios, right? I think most people—I don't know—it's been a long time, but um, most people in early twenties can probably look at those little tiny icons on the iPhone, for example, and make sense of it. Um, But I mean, I can't, right? I'm 42, and I would not personally just out of sheer, uh, I don't know, ego preservation would not go into the settings to change the contrast ratio for my icons, right? But I think if you, just, if you just make that one solution for everybody it just kind of works and you don't have to think about it. And I think, you know, except in very um, limited cases that's the
0: right solution to go with. But, you, but Apple, Apple's the maven of design, right? We all, you know, look to Apple but yet they have this. They, they've done that. So are you saying they poor design on their part? No, no. no. I mean, uh, so they have kind of two levels of accessibility, right? The levels of accessibility, they kind
3: of bake in. That's going to hit a lot of people. Then there's like the super set where you might need a little extra. So um, it's funny because they have the accessibility settings, but with a regular design, it's already built in and you don't even see it or you don't think about it.
0: Paul, in you know, in your DISH experience, did, did, was, is it a, is, so do we make accessibility an option, or as Sean said, it's just built in, there, there is no option?
1: Uh, it, it depended on what it was. Like, for example, you don't want um, text-to-speech on by default. That's just going to really annoy people. Um, I, and you know, I think we've seen this on like DVDs and Blu-rays, where they automatically turn on all this stuff. And so, most people don't want closed captioning on by default, so they wind up having to go back and turn it off. Um, it's it's just weird. There's only a handful that that seem to have done that. But um, I'm trying to remember the other things we have to do. But uh, certainly the the color blindness thing um, was a big thing. And 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 basically, when uh, we took care of uh, Anybody with any kind of CVD or color vision deficiency, um, it actually was easier for people to even just look at a remote and see a symbol rather than a, a color, um, and that sort of thing. The other thing we did is, is for example, we decided um, when you pick up the remote, maybe one of one of the automatic things we did is the the keyboard lights up right on the on the remote control. Guess what? That wasn't just for people with uh, vision problems that was everybody really loved that one cuz a lot of people watch TV in the dark <laughs> so yeah no I, about, I i appreciate that on my ipad
4: think about think voice so? control i mean there are things that are yeah, sold as features control. right and voice control for uh, that are built into remote controls and different electronics that's that's you know a, a big feature that they're advertised by the cable companies and others so mm-hmm. and of course that improves accessibility too
0: yeah guys i want to I got a couple of different angles here that I want us to go in on. Let's turn from accessibility on its own now as it relates to primarily people who have challenges to usability, which is closely aligned with it, but is maybe a little bit broader, broader in our in our scope, right? What and all three of you, you know, designing and interfaces and, and so forth. What would have been some of the big breakthroughs you think we've made around usability that have enabled this world we live in where everything's an app? And, and it's, you know, what amazes me is three year olds can figure apps out like this. You know, people who get a little older kind of struggle. And uh, there must be something about usability, a lesson there somewhere. But what, what, do, you, what do you think on that? Paula, why don't, why don't you kick off?
2: Yeah, I think there's, I think there's been an adoption of uh, universal design, um, where it's kind of to the to the point that Sean and Paul were making uh, previously, which is like, you know, making sure that you design with like inclusion in mind from the get go. Um, And then you can have like a second layer of accessibility, you know, if you have like special, like, needs just above what is already there. I mean, this is the equivalent of like in the real world, um, having like a at the the front of a building, like a really nice ramp kind of along a set of stairs, you know, it looks very beautiful as opposed to having like some janky ramp at the back of the building, you know, where you can't like just access it like everybody else does if you have uh, a different need. So I think that, so that first example, right, in the real world is is more like universal design. And I think there's been a breakthrough in, in making sure that our apps are, are kind of starting with universal design and that's gonna improve usability, right? Because accessibility to benefits everybody and anything that is accessible is, is probably going to improve usability. Um, I think also just like, you know, having to use touch screens and the fact that technology kind of permeates every aspect of our lives and maybe we're using technology while we're, while, while we're driving, for example, or like while we are distracted, while we are pushing a grocery cart with one hand um, has really pushed us to like design and build, you know, really usable things, um, even in limited situations.
0: Fair enough,
1: Paul? Yeah, one, one thing I'll, I'll add to that is, yeah, and, and I agree with that, um, is we've gone forward in, in a lot of respects and I also feel like we've gone backward. And the reason I say that is, for example, when you talk about kids being able to get on an iPad and figure it out, it's because they're willing to explore. They're very playful. They like to explore things. They, they find things. Um, whereas you have somebody who's not quite so, shall we say, technologically brave, like, say, my mother, um, the affordances aren't there. So she, she doesn't know how to get to certain things because you have to do a lot of discovery sometimes to, to use something like an iPad. So we got to be a little bit cognizant of that. I, I think the, the lack of affordance in a lot of features is something we, we we need to make sure you know we work on a little bit because uh, some of these devices for people who are a little bit scared of technology are, are very difficult actually to use. But in terms of things like uh, touch targets, for example, I think touchscreens have helped us with even desktop web applications, for example, because we're, we're looking at uh, things like, uh, I forget if it's Hicks or, or, or Fitts Law, where basically the ability to, to uh, and the speed with which you can actually click on a control has to do with its size and the distance you are from that thing. And touch screens have taught us a lot about, you know, let's make things big. Don't make the, you know, these little bitty text pieces that we used, used to do that you could click on nicely with a mouse because, mouse give, you know, a mouse gives you a lot of control. Instead, let's make these nice big targets. And that helps, again, that helps everybody.
0: Sean, any thoughts on that?
1: Well, they did a pretty good job. I had a list of things I was going
3: to mention, and I think about half, more than half of them got checked off as they were talking. So (laughs) um, definitely, um, I think one thing that's also helped out too, about a couple more things, um, voice controls as well, because that kind of forces people to make the interactions as simple as possible. And you know, that kind of carries over from voice design into actual physical screen design, for example. Um, the other thing too, it's a little bit um, meta but it's also the broadening of what we mean by user experience. So I think, I mean, I've seen it kind of be been, been more expansive, right? Where before we just considered the in product experience itself, right? And I think now we're looking at experience in a broader sense where it's, you know, what's the person's ecosystem? What is their environment? How are they learning this? So, for example, and I'm sure Paula can speak to this being a software engineer, it is harder than hell to learn a new programming language if you don't have the right basis for it, right? Um, and no matter how easy the tool is to use, for example, like a software, like a software tool, like for the, in the tech space, um, no matter how usable it is, if you don't have that foundational knowledge, it's going to be completely um, difficult. So I think we've seen. It, the definition expand to include things like learning or helping people understand not just how to use a product, but educating them about the discipline as well. And I mean, I'm kind of jealous of people that are coming out of school now learning programming because there's a lot of like online tutorials, there's a lot of in-product support to learn things and um, a lot of community forums. That's part of the broader definition of experience. I think that's really helped improve usability of the products as well. Sure, all right. One of the big
4: advances I want to add to this conversation is, again, I'll show my age. I can remember the day of wireframes just printed on paper, mm -hmm. uh, simulated mouse pointer manipulated by a pencil or something to simulate a design. Think about the tools that we have today that designers can use to build a complete graphical interface, sometimes even simulating full application or most of the application functionality to do usability testing, but also to to experiment and and make rapid changes. So the the tool set, the technology to embody the design is so much better than even, I would say even 10 years ago. You think about it in the Xcode development environment what the UI simulation tools were very basic. A uh, uh, Mac app or uh, an app for a phone. Now it's okay. I want to see this on every model of every phone, on watches, and on on my uh, on my web page. You can do that from a design tool. I, again, not just about accessibility; it's got a lot of other capabilities. But it's it's a great environment to work in. Okay, like Sean says, what a great place to start if you're getting in the industry now. Yeah. That
3: makes uh, a very good point, actually. Too, I think um, more than anything, it's. Uh, also, we don't have to sell user testing anymore. Um, well, not as much anyway.
0: Where before, I remember I had to flex- careful, short. I know you're only there three months, but I will give you a hint: and Tricentis, do never never say you don't have to sell testing. Um, just okay, just yeah. kidding. <laughs> Let me rephrase that.
3: Yeah. All right. So for. Uh, <laughs> So for user testing, right, we can put our prototypes in front of users a lot quicker because of the tooling and because of broader organizational support for testing. Um, and yeah, you can just test a lot more people a lot faster with the new tools and so forth. And I think our testing methods have actually evolved over time as well. So I think that's also because that rapid feedback from our users before production, we get a lot um we get so much rich data from that.
1: That kind yeah. of brings me
0: into where I want to. Okay, again, Paul, I'll I'll jump in after you. Go ahead.
1: Oh, that's okay. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know if uh, you and Mitch, I'm sure Mitch remembers this, but one of the things I wound up doing um, back at that network security company we worked for (laughs) um, was putting together click-through prototypes because there was really no other way to actually show people how the actual interaction design works. Uh, Before that, it was just sort of, you know, it's just wireframe by wireframe or, you know, even, even a hi-fi uh, sort of screenshot or design, that, that sort of thing, you really never got a feeling for the interaction design. So I wound up writing, you know, a ton of JavaScript so I could actually show people how the interaction works, not just, and I could actually usability test right off that before it ever went into development. And now we have things like Figma and Envision and stuff, which are absolutely wonderful, but uh, it took a lot of work back then to, you know, get those actually interactive.
0: I do, I remember that. I do um, too. <laughs> yeah. So let let's let's talk a little bit about though, you know, accessibility and usability in the age of DevOps, which is you know, we're DevOps unbound here, right? And and so I mean there's good in bed. I think Sean, you you nailed it. The good is, hey man, we, we're doing usability and accessibility testing pre-deployment as part of our design which is a lot better than feedback loops, but, you know, going back to go every time, right? But on the other hand, when you're changing your application and potentially your UI making little changes, even if they're just little changes, 10 times a day or a hundred times a day, sometimes what, what was fixed can get broken. Or, you know, you could do the, I call it the DevOps cha-cha, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. And um, you know, how do we how do we do that? How do we account for that in our usability and, and you know design in, in, in a DevOps world like that? Paula?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important uh, to start having an accessible site really early on, right? So like at the beginning of your of your site, like the beginning of your company, if you invest in accessibility, you can really avoid these mistakes. The reason being that like all of the code examples from before will already have been accessible. Um, The reason being that like the design systems that you put in place will already be accessible. And so when you design something new and you iterate on it like you're taking design elements that are already accessible, right? Like really investing at the beginning is I think with the best way to really kind of fight against this.
0: Paul or Sean?
3: Yeah, I hardly agree to that. and I think the best way to, to design, I mean, to invest up front is to make it, just to bake it into your design pattern library. So basically, it's kind of creating that common set of reusable components, um, code components, and design components. And um, hopefully, most of the design changes are just rearranging those components, those Lego bricks, right? But if each brick has accessibility baked into it, um, that doesn't break the code in terms of accessibility. So I think that's probably the best way to solve it. It's also probably one of the most, um, difficult. And just because you have to do that up front, right? You have to do that. You have to make your design pattern library up front. You have to maintain that code base. But um, once you actually have that set up, it just makes development so much faster anyway. So it's actually a win-win for everybody for accessibility and for developers.
0: Mitchell, Paul, anything?
1: Um, yeah. W- one thing um, I'm, I'm relatively new to my company as well. So I'm trying to introduce uh, quite a bit uh, including uh we're we're creating our own design system right now um but one of the things i want to introduce and i want to I, I don't have any results of this but i really want to educate our testers our qa people very much on how to test a site or a product for accessibility um you know doing things without you know with just a keyboard and and putting your mouse away and and those sorts of things so I think if we do a lot more of that, and they they kind of do regression testing in, in, in that way, at least once in a while, uh, we can ensure accessibility quite a bit more as well.
2: Sure. Yeah, that, that is a good point, and that does bring me to another point, which is um, you can also kind of bake it into your, your development process in terms of linting. So there's a lot of really great linters out there, for example, for uh, JSX, there's just JSX-A11Y. And if you don't know, accessibility is often abbreviated as A11Y. Um, mm-hmm. And so that'll, that'll stop you from making mistakes early on. And to Paul's point about testing, I mean, yeah, accessibility can actually be baked into like your, your testing process. Uh, your end-to-end tests, you know, can run after you push to, to your master or primary branch um, and they can test accessibility as well. There's a lot of tools out there for making that possible. For example, PA11Y. Uh, Um, can help you do that. You can then go ahead and monitor that in something like Datadog. So similar to how you monitor other things that can break in your code, you can monitor accessibility um, and consider it a regression or above when something breaks and and catch that before you go to production.
4: You know, one of the things I'm curious about is um, the acceptance of usability design, usability testing by the developer community, DevOps community, how much has that improved? Is it now, you know, security people struggle with, okay, let's shift left and get security built into the application more, but you've been at this a lot longer. What's, what's the what's acceptance like now by software teams and, and people leaving development?
1: My experience is it, it varies a lot. <laughs> it depends on the particular personnel involved. One of the things I, I found that that's really helped is in uh, the design system I'm putting together. Um, I put a lot of rationale in there. I don't just give people specs and say follow this. I don't I don't take any kind of dr- draconian approach to any of it. In fact, I want a lot of feedback, and I I've baked in I I put a lot of their feedback, including from engineers, back into the design system itself. Um, but explaining the rationale of why are we doing things this way? And even if they don't fully, shoot, sorry. Uh, even if they don't fully um, read the site and go through it in detail, giving presentations about, here's why we do the things we do. And I can tell you a lot of engineers really appreciate that. They, they love, or developers, they, they love knowing why they're going through the pains of, of doing some of these things. And they, and they see, they see the rationale and then they see it develop and they and they see that, oh yeah, this is so much easier to use. Um, and I, I've seen a, a lot of that. There are others who are a little more resistant to some, such things. It's just a little bit individual in that respect. Absolutely. Hey,
0: Sean, I'm gonna put you on the spot. Oh no, okay. <laughs> we know you're only there three months, but talk to us, what does Tricentis have built into their testing? you know, solutions for accessibility, usability testing. Is that something Tricenters plays in? Or are you dealing more with how to build that into the actual Tricenters products? So, yeah, so
3: so my vantage point is more of how to build it into the product. So we're looking at um, ways to kind of standardize our look and feel or UI, right? And as part of that, even before we start making the very first sketch file to represent what those components look like, we need to bake in what the accessibility requirements are. So I'm looking at it from that
0: perspective. Got it, got it. Um, so guys, you know, we, we haven't really mentioned COVID much, right? And, and you, we can't do a, it's always the elephant in the room in 2020. How, how has the pandemic, people working from home, uh, everything that comes out of this nightmare of a, of a situation—how how, has that had any effect on usability, accessibility at all?
3: Oh, from my standpoint, it's helped. It's this is the one silver lining of this whole storm of, of COVID. It's um, I think it's just making people more inherently empathetic because they've been experiencing the pain of, of you know remote tools not being up to snuff, for example. Um, and I think that just it's given people a different mindset for others. Um, and it's exposed a lot of holes in like our, um, the way that we think about things, right? And that's forced people to think about others in a way that they haven't before. So I've noticed there's actually been a lot more um, enthusiasm, a lot more support and a lot, of more, a lot more proactive uh, discussion about accessibility and, inc- and inclusive design for that matter um,
0: because of COVID. Absolutely. Paula, Paul, any thoughts?
2: I Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's a great point. I think to add to that, I think a lot of people are are doing things online um, that they were doing in person before. Like I know my grandparents are shopping online uh, when they would shop in person before. Um, and I don't have any data to actually support this, but I imagine that that's definitely driven the desire to have accessible websites.
1: In a sense, we've been sort of lucky in that we're, we're a global company. so. We do so much work together online um, that I feel very fortunate that I work for this company because the, the transition has actually been relatively simple. It's um, For most of us, it's actually helped because we, we just get so much more work done. But uh, we already had so many tools in place for, um, for working with each other, but we're even discovering more. Like I, I'm putting together a thing, a thing called a feedback workshop where. Um, You basically, you have online post-it notes, and while you're giving a design presentation, everybody just sort of stays quiet, and they write down their notes, and then we sort of put them into buckets, and we talk about them later. We actually get through design reviews much much more quickly, and it's mainly because we're not doing these things in person. We've never thought about doing it this way.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I get it. Last subject, because we're running low on time. My experience and, and I've been in the technology business 30 years is that a lot of times things like accessibility, usability, quite frankly, even security. Are not afterthoughts but bolted on after the fact they're not built into that design from the get go and you know we're in an age now where we're look we're, we're seeing like, for instance, Kubernetes cloud native infrastructure right for for deployments really kind of be the de facto standard. But it, it's always my experience that, you know, you know, deployment tools for for Kubernetes. So whatever the latest greatest fad or, you know, trends are, it takes a little while for accessibility, usability to catch up to those latest and greatest things. Are we because of some of the stuff we've spoken about here today, will we avoid that pitfall with the latest crop of of technologies that we're using, right? So has accessibility, usability become so mainstream that we build it in from the get-go? Sean, that's a big part of your mission, I bet at Chai what do you think?
3: It really is, and and not to, to oversell it, but I think that um, a lot of successful companies are building it in right where it's expected. And I've seen a lot of companies that haven't done that that take that old approach to kind of bolting it on right. Um, I've seen them kind of fall by the wayside. So just through kind of like this the process of natural selection of how companies evolve and how they grow revenue over time, the companies that do actually build it in are the successful ones. So um, I think- yeah. Yeah, I, I, right. Paul,
1: I, I totally agree with that, and, and I uh, just add to that, you know, I just think the marketplace now is one where people expect it. it. It's no longer a desire to have usability and user experience built in. It's an expectation, and if you don't build it in, especially right away, you're, you're very likely to fail. <laughs>
3: Actually, Paul, I'm trying to do something else too. It's like, I know that whenever I interview new designers, for example, right? I think what we're seeing as well is that a lot of uh, people, um, a lot of designers especially, are really socially conscious, right? And just nuts and bolts trying to recruit for new talent and so forth. If you don't have accessibility baked into your process or you don't have a position on it, it is really hard to recruit design talent because of it. So, um, I mean, I'm, saying, I'm not saying that's the reason to do accessibility, but definitely, if you don't do it, that's one of the benefits of, or that's one of the drawbacks of, of not having it, is that you can't recruit the talent needed to make the great designs of your products in the first place.
0: Excellent. Paula?
2: yeah, no, I I, I agree with all of that. Um, I'm not sure whether or not the the new crop of technology will necessarily mean that it'll be accessible from the get go. There's still a lot of barriers to this. Um, it's really, it's not invested in, I think, like, I think we're, we're starting to understand why we should invest in accessibility more, um, but there's still an overwhelming percentage of the internet, which is not accessible, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think there is a, a, a trend towards more accessible. And like, and like Paul said, right, I, a lot of people are much more socially conscious now, and that, that definitely helps. And, you know, to Sean's point, it's important to hire, like, a lot of people who are getting hired nowadays care about accessibility. So
0: absolutely yeah, hey, Mitchell, one, you want to take that oh, upside i was going to say take, yeah, take the last word here
4: i'm just going to jump in and say there's one universal skill every software user has and that's to sniff out bad software and and we live in a world of choice we have tons of choices think about all the apps for your phone on your phone it's no longer it's word for word processing right or for documents you have tons of choices and And people have options and i think that that's not something that the business side of the house understands of why great design it's not just good design it's great design people choose and build loyalty with companies like apple uh, because they have such loyalty to their design standards and and the the accessibility usability of their products they really like that and that that can be a major differentiator Um, i also want to share one other thought to kind of a future thing to think about that I'm concerned about that we don't understand much yet about COVID and that's the uh, impact, the neurological impact to individuals because there apparently is some residual impact to some people who have COVID. And that may be with us for a long time. We don't know if it's temporary or if, it, if it's the, the longevity of it, uh, but we could have a society of you know, large numbers of people that have some level of impact from that. And that could be a lasting impact of COVID that we need to design more effectively for those kinds of situations for end user. Let's hope not. But, but if it is, I think it's something we have to take, take extremely
0: seriously. Agreed. Listen, Sean, Paul, Paula, thanks for joining Mitchell and I on this episode of DevOps on I think it's been a great discussion around usability and accessibility. We're gonna revisit it again in the future and we'd love for you to come join us. But um, we're gonna have to call an end to this DevOps Unbound episode. Thank you all for watching, we hope you enjoyed it. You know DevOps Unbound, past episodes, our monthly roundtables, even the audio only podcast versions of these are all available at devopsunbound.com. So you can go there to see the whole collection and, and take your pick of which ones you'd like to experience. Guys, thanks very much. This is Alan Schimmel for DevOps Unbound. Many thanks to Tricentis for sponsoring our DevOps Unbound series. We'll be back. Uh, we actually, we have a great roundtable coming up, Mitchell, this month. We do. Uh, and we have a, another show we'll be on in two weeks. Thanks very much, everyone. Have a great day.